Hello and thanks for joining us on Scottish Independence Podcasts. This week we've got something a little bit different for you. It is a discussion organised by the Radical Independence Campaign with a range of guest speakers, all of whom support the idea that Scotland should be a republic. Very interesting discussion. Here we go. My name is Alan Armstrong, uh, Radical Independence Campaign. This meeting was organised by the Radical Independence Campaign and basically it's about building up the challenge for the coronation next year on May the 5th. Our public organised a meeting up on the Calton Hill, which was attended by 60 to 70 people earlier in the year in protest against the, uh, the Jubilee. But the Radical Independence Campaign was there, Tommy Shepherd was there. Obviously, since then, things have developed. You know, the death of the Queen and the, you know, the attempted forced adulation period that we had after that led to our Republic and Radical Independence Campaign again turning up on the day of the attempt to proclaim uh, Charles your King. We had a relatively small demonstration, but Connor, who will be coming later, his voice was uh, certainly a booming voice, such that it was picked up by television. And despite the small size of the demonstration, it was very well covered indeed. We would like to have a demonstration next year on Colton Hill. Obviously, Colton Hill is symbolic importance in Scotland. First speaker tonight is, is going to be Tristan Gray, who's from Our Republic. Hi, so I'm the convener of Our Republic. Um, we set ourselves up back in um, early 2020, looking to try and set up something that represented republicanism in Scotland with a focus on that republicanism, because we felt that although there was a breadth of organisations across the UK and in Scotland that either included republicanism or looked at a UK-wide look at republicanism, there wasn't an organisation that focused on that republicanism, republicanism specifically with an understanding of Scottish politics, which, as I'm sure everyone here is aware, is very distinct and unique compared to UK politics as a whole. Unfortunately, due to the fact that we set up in early 2020, our initial plans to set up a mass movement-based campaign based on in-person events um, did not launch as intended. And we ended up becoming a largely online group um, looking to basically set up the foundations for an organisation that would be able to hit the ground running when the time came that the conversation around republicanism came to the present. That eventually happened finally with the uh, Jubilee event earlier this year, where we had an opportunity to actually bring people together from across the spectrum, a broad tent Republican approach, which included speakers from RIC, from the Republican so Socialist Platform, from the SNP, Scottish Greens, and the Scottish Labour Party. Uniting factor between them is republicanism, the belief that the monarchy is not an institution fit for the present and that we need to move beyond it towards an elected head of state for Scotland. And that is the aim of our republic. The sole aim of our organisation is towards an elected head of state for Scotland. And I believe we're in a pretty good spot to begin fighting for that. Polls recently have, have shown that although... We have about a third of Scots in our corner right now. Should independence happen, that proportion changes to 50-50. And with the fact that republicanism is far more popular among the younger than it is in older voters, we know that time is on our side to fight for that republican future. And with a 
one third to 50% backing already with us. That is a higher support than the independent schools had before 2012. So we know that that swing is possible in the electorate, that if we have the right arguments, if we push the right message to Scottish voters, we can produce that swing towards a Republican future. That message, as far as we've been concerned with our messaging so far, isn't a financial one. We've seen other Republican groups um, push really hard on the arguments whether or not the monarchy brings in tourists or how much money they cost the British state. We don't believe that that is a winning formula for winning voters over. It's a technical argument. When it comes down to it, big political constitutional campaigns like this are won on emotions and what people think is fair for them. And we know that all of the arguments, when it comes down to it, when people start thinking about their place in society, swing towards us. When it comes to what people think is fair, whether they think it is right that only one family has a chance to represent the country, whether they think it's right that only one family gets to preview laws before they come into force and are able to fight for exemptions without the rest of people in Scotland even knowing what those are. We think we have the winning argument and a winning platform to build off. And that's where we hope to be taking forward the campaign from this point. Hi, everybody. I'm Simon Barrow. Um, I'm here, well, I was put down on the, the list as being on behalf of SNP Socialists, which I've been the executive of for some time. I'm also the National Secretary of the SNP Trade Union Group, and I run a think tank called Ecclesia, which is also opposed to monarchy and looks at the connection between politics and beliefs and ethics. Really, what I want to start off saying is that my dear departed father, who died nearly 25 years ago, is either smiling wryly or turning in his grave right at the moment, because I was brought up in one of the most monarchist households <laughs> you could possibly imagine. My, my father virtually worshipped the Queen Mother, and um, when he died, we inherited a very large collection of books, coffee table books and other more academic books about all the European royal families. Uh, one thing I have therefore reflected on is, is what is the appeal of the monarchy? And I mean, I want to make a confession, which I suspect a number of us could make, which is that I just can't figure it to a certain extent. I mean, here, here you're dealing with a system that's based on pure eugenic privilege, which, you know, in, in any other context, eugenic arguments are going to go down badly, but apparently this has been sort of normalised. I think one of the things that we'll need to do moving forward in organising a campaign is to look at the kind of propaganda that's going to be deployed in defence of the, the monarchy and the current system. There was, I think, at one point some you know, hope that with the demise of Elizabeth Windsor and the, the rise of Charles Windsor, that people's attitudes would change. But I mean, the amount of propaganda that was built, not just around the Queen's funeral, but also around the succession, the attempt to align those two things together. I escaped most of it because I was in the States visiting the family, where, of course, the monarchy looks even more peculiar, although the irony there is that um, although people effectively have established uh, their society in contradiction to a monarchy, nevertheless, it has this kind of emotional appeal. And, and the, the, the issue of the emotional appeal is one that we need to look at. One of the key things that clearly is being done is you, you could say, in a sense, that the modern monarchy, which isn't too modern in Britain, both predates and prefigures celebrity culture, but it's certainly seeking to use celebrity culture 
in order to solidify itself. Although, of course, that's gone badly wrong at times. So, you know, for example, the Diana debacle, it went seriously wrong. The Harry and Meghan hullabaloo uh, is producing, producing something else. But, I, I mean, there is a better wave of PR coming in behind them at the moment. And much so when the issues of climate change and King Charles are mentioned in the same breath, I immediately want to come back and say private cars, private helicopters, huge houses and exemptions from environmental protection. Nevertheless, he was quite clever to come up with the idea of creating an event around COP27. And that's probably what shifted Sunak in a different direction on that, although Sunak will go to COP27 to try and rewash the UK government. So there's no real gain there. But, you know, they're, they're thinking slightly more cleverly. So I think that's the first challenge we need to look at. The second challenge we need to look at is the political one, because I think clearly what, what we want to do is to organise the constituency of people who already understand why the monarchy is such a problem as an absolutely key part of reinforcing a class system. But there are many people who don't look at it like that and haven't been brought up to look at it like that, as I certainly wasn't, wasn't from a sort of middle-class Southern English family. And so I think it's important to try and make arguments which aren't just about convincing ourselves, but are about enlarging that third. And that's going to mean crossing some sort of cultural and social bridges at times. The one that I find in talking to people about the monarchy is that the difficulty in arguing for a republic is that a lot of people say, well, what you're really wanting to do is to replace the current monarchy, which is kind of symbolic, with more politicians. And really, we don't want more politicians. I don't want a president like Trump, is what they will say. Now, I mean, of course, there's an obvious response to that, which is that if you look at the recent history of Ireland, Everyone from the centre-right to the Workers' Party, which in theory is a Marxist party, has got behind three presidents going back to about 1991, who I think we'd all think were, were rather good people in a whole variety of ways. I mean, Mike, Michael Higgins, Mary Magalese, and particularly Mary Robinson. You know, you can have questions about that, but I think those are the kind of practical things that people are going to argue about. What's the alternative, as well as what's clearly wrong with the system? So I think that what we need to do is to be able to move the, the territory onto the debate about the subversive role of the monarchy in relation to democracy, the difference between being a subject and being a citizen. We've got before us here the Declaration of Carlton Hill from 2004, and this sets out opposition to a monarchy in relation to a radical pro process of democratisation. And democracy, it seems to me, needs to be a political process, it needs to an economic process and an environmental process. And so analysing and arguing uh, why the monarchy is an undermining of all that. The third point is that we're going to need to use some imagination. I think the idea of, you know, simultaneous events in Scotland and Wales and Ireland is really terrific. What's the alternative symbolism? What are we presenting? Because otherwise, particularly when it comes to the coronation, we, we're in danger of looking like a minority blowing raspberries against this sort of juggernaut. That's a terrible mixed metaphor, but you know what I mean. <laughs> like a lot of people in this room, I, I you know, probably have been speaking out against the monarchy for some time. And the one that particularly comes back to me is the 29th of July, 1981, which was, of course, the marriage of Charles and Diana. And so um, as somewhat younger in those days, admittedly, um, I decided to join others in making a protest. I think I was living down south then and organised a 
um, the stuff of the royal wedding picnic in Richmond Park, which didn't attract many people apart from those of us who already felt like that. But I achieved a major thing, which is I was working for a business organisation at the time, and we were all, of course, you know, given a day off. And I actually refused to take the day off and got another day off instead. So I also managed to create employment because the caretaker of my organisation had to come into the building to let me in, so he got paid for a day when it wouldn't. But they could only open one office because of security and fire and other things, and that was the office that I worked in. So I walked into my office. Outside the office, there was some scaffolding, and I assumed no one would be there, but there were workmen there, and they had the radio on, loudly playing the wedding the whole day. <laughs> so I didn't manage to escape it. But that sort of feeling that you're sort of on your own battling against it, I think the most important thing we have to do is to create solidarities. Imagination, solidarities, a different kind of political agenda, beginning to show people that this isn't just about replacing one figurehead with another, much though we might want to do that in the Republic. It's also about a, a different kind of social and political settlement. And then the last point, really, and to raise as a discussion point, is in relation to uh, an independence campaign, an independence referendum. I think people will have different views on that. I think for me, the most important thing is to stress that it should be the people of Scotland who decide. There's almost no chance of drowning any of, any of the sort of political parties, probably apart from the Greens, and there may even be a debate there, into making a republic part of the platform in arguing for independence. I think we should certainly argue as in terms of those for whom that would be a major issue. I think we should certainly make that the case whether we expect the wider campaign to make it the issue or in what way it's made an issue is, I think, open for more discussion. But as I say, that the people should decide is the key thing, because it also links back to the main reason that we oppose monarchy. Hand over to Connor for the Radical Independence Company. Hand over to Connor for the Radical Independence Company. As long as, long as I remember having an opinion about the British royal family, I've been against it. Um, but it's really only in the last couple of years that I would say being a Republican has become uh, a very central part of my my politics, my worldview, and how I can I see the world. So uh, the reason for that is beginning to understand Republicanism as this thread that connects hundreds of years of working class struggles for democracy, um, all the way from you know the French Revolution through to the Chartists, and of course, the Irish Republican movement, which ended up striking one of the first big blows against the British Empire. Um, in Scotland, as I'm sure people have already said, the biggest democratic struggle is around independence. It's about the right for Scotland to actually decide um, our constitutional status. And I think it's not surprising in that context that Scotland consistently ranks in opinion polls as part of Britain anyway, that is like most opposed and hostile to the royal family, to the monarchy. Um, because we've just spent years in a national debate about the fact that sovereignty should rest with the people of Scotland. So we've been kind of learning in practice what republicanism means, and I don't think people are likely to forget those lessons. Um, and in fact, around the world, there have been more and more countries that have been kind of rediscovering republicanism or discovering it and reevaluating their relationship to the British crown in particular. Barbados last year decided to become a republic. We've also seen a lot of these Caribbean ex-colonies not just severing the relationship with the crown by getting rid of the monarchy, but also some of the other connections that they have with the British state. So, for example, in a lot of these former colonies, the Judicial Committee of the Privy Council, based in London, was still their highest court of appeal. 
Um, and more and more of them are scrapping that, and there's a new Caribbean Court of Justice that's taken on. But it's interesting to watch that process move along. People have been watching the news closely. You might see that Bermuda is having a bit of a conversation now about what kind of constitutional relationship they might want to have with the British state and the Crown, because um, they had a piece of legislation on legalising cannabis, which was passed by their legislature. It should have become the law. Um, but the UK government intervened on the basis that this would break various international agreements that the UK signed up to, and therefore they were going to refuse royal assent. They were not going to let Charles sign it. Australia's got a new Labour government, and that government is also open to a debate about a republic. And the kind of historic thing looming over that discussion um, is the experience of Gough Whitlam's government in the 1970s. Um, that was a Labour government which was brought down in 1975 by the Governor-General of Australia, the person who is the Queen's representative in the country and can exercise power on behalf of the, the monarchy. Um, and we know thanks to historian Jenny Hawking, who fought a years-long campaign to get access to the papers, um, the private papers of the Governor-General, that he had actually discussed and consulted a certain Prince Charles months before he did this. And I think it's there's a lot in those papers that's actually worth reviewing. And it's interesting the way that it was actually reported very much as these papers disprove that there was any kind of interaction with the British Crown, whereas actually the Governor-General had repeatedly asked, is it okay if I do this? And of course was told, do as you please. Um, so for those of us in the independence movement, uh, especially those of us like the Radical Independence Campaign who would want an independent Scotland to be a you know a serious break from British policy in a lot of different ways. The question is, why would we want to keep a mechanism in place that would give the UK government so much power over our democracy? Even short of exercising that power, like even if the UK government wasn't to intervene in this way, there's always the threat of that being possible and that has an impact on our democracy as well. So that's why... As someone who came into politics through the independence referendum, and the first thing I was involved in as a teenager was the 2014 campaign. Um, Republicanism is like a really important thing to me now. It's because sovereignty should rest with the people of Scotland. And that kind of excludes to me any structures which are opaque, which are undemocratic, uh, and are open to abuse. Um, and that's before we actually deal with the royals themselves. So tainted by racism, legacy of colonialism, covering up sexual abuse, uh, like Prince Andrew in the ranks, and uh, obviously hoarding wealth, you know, the likes of which none of us in this in this room can ever imagine if happened. And we can see with the coronation what that might look like at a time of austerity. And of course, we're paying for all that with our taxes. So uh, looking ahead, I think we've got a really important opportunity to shape the narrative around the coronation. I think we actually did a really good job with the proclamation, considering that none of us knew in advance when the Queen was going to die. And of course, that's, you know, it's a very macabre process that the Queen's death is such a big political event in any case. Um, but having had no advance notice of that, I hope anyway, I didn't, that we actually managed to make a very prominent show of dissent you know, in the media, in the public discourse. And that was with very few people, with very short notice. And we now have this big advantage of, we have months of notice. We know that the 6th of May is going to be the date of the coronation. We've got time to prepare. The government also has time to prepare, but we've got time to prepare and we should take full advantage of that. I think there should be a mass demonstration. I think it's really good that the Republic have called for a demonstration on Calton Hill on the day of the coronation. Um, and I'll certainly support that. But I think we should also be involved in a process in the months leading up to that, trying to bring together people, Republicans, Democrats and Socialists, uh, to talk about what a genuinely democratic republic actually looks like in the 21st century. The question really of how do we transfer political power to the lowest possible level. And I think we should think about ways that we can connect 
those of us in Scotland, with those of us in the other parts of these islands, as well as the wider you know, so-called Commonwealth. I think a really good model actually is last year, the COP26 People Summit was actually a really well-executed international summit. Um, as Rick, as part of that, we brought people from Wales, Puerto Rico and Cabilia together to, do- to talk about the right of nations to self-determination. Um, I think we could do something like that again. Why don't we bring together people from around the world and make really visible the global democratic movements um, that are pushing for this? And I think that's also a part of coalition building, making connections. So, for example, I know that the climate justice movement has got an interest in republicanism. I think there was a certain... <laughs> yeah, there we go. A certain amount of outrage when it emerged that, for example, the monarchy is consulted on environmental legislation that might affect the, the vast crown estates. And, you know, I'm, re- I'm really encouraged that people that I know in the climate justice movement have been involved in some of the protests around the proclamation, the protests around the right to, you know, say, not my king. And they, of course, have really important experience in direct action, which is something I would want to bring into any, <laughs> again, seeing a lot of support, into any discussion about opposing to coronation. I think basically our short-term immediate goal is actually trying to just legitimise republicanism. Uh, I think that's actually the hard part of this process. And I think if we've legitimised republicanism and we get that into the public discussion as a legitimate opinion, we're about halfway there. And especially in the discussion about an independent Scotland, if we can make, for example, the Scottish government, the SNP, various parts of that movement, less scared of the idea of being Republicans and being openly Republicans. And that will make a big difference. And really what we've got to fight for is if Scotland becomes independent, why don't we have a debate about the monarchy, all kinds of things that, sh- that will go into our Scottish constitution. We should be drawing that up democratically, participatory. I certainly think it's easy to win that argument. You just have to create the space for it to be there. So that's what I hope this meeting is the kind of starting point for and uh, one that we can carry on for the next six months. Thanks very much, Colin. I'll hand over to Maggie. Hi, everyone. I'm Maggie Chapman. I'm the Scottish Green MSP for the Northeast of Scotland region. I'm very pleased to be here. Was involved in Rick. Thank you very much for inviting me to, to contribute this evening. As you would expect, there's not that much dissent or disagreement and I think there's some common threads running through what I'm going to say and and what others have already said. When I was elected um, last May I had to take an affirmation. You get a choice between an affirmation or or an oath. I chose an affirmation to Elizabeth and I chose to do it in Shona as well as in English as a nod to my Zimbabwean childhood and also to mark you know, that the Queen should be answered in a language of the the people that her ancestors oppressed and enslaved and colonised. We had a a friend do the formal translation for us just to to make sure he's a a, a Zimbabwean academic. Um, But for a laugh, I I put it through Google Translate just to see what it came out with. And there's a line in it that we have to say, we swear allegiance, we affirm allegiance to Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth and all of all of her heirs and successors. But into Shona and back again, Google Translate translated that as Her Majesty Elizabeth and all of her banshees. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I think of them. We know that the time for republicanism has has come. We know that well, there's been a great deal of affection for Elizabeth as a monarch. And I think it was quite clear around the time of her death that people thought of her as being like a mother, a grandmother, a a part of the family, an affectionate, much-loved elderly relative. And I think that's a function of her most incredible quality. Not only did she not really have any opinions on matters of substance to the world, 
I don't think that sherry horses or corgis count. But she was able to pre- prevent the idea that she had any opinions even entering people's minds. So she didn't have any opinions, and we didn't think she had any opinions. That that, that was quite clear. And so there wasn't any sense that she was keeping her opinions private. She just thought nothing at all. And I think that made her a fantastic canvas for people to project their own images, their own thoughts, their own ideas, their own vision of what this nice little old lady was and, and should be. That their own mother, their own grandmother, an elderly aunt that, that they liked, a kindly figure who gave no reason to disagree with her. And we can, of course, disagree with this, but in some ways, I think that that's a helpful way to think about it. And of course, she's dead now, so it's, that's all in the past. But I think we have the opportunity to make the case for a republic without making people feel like they're attacking their own granny because she's gone. We've moved on. We're not attacking this, this mother, grandmother, the kindly figure that has been there for, for 70 years. So how do we do that? I think this is, you'll see some common threads coming through here. I think we need to make the case on principle. We need to make the case in practical terms and we need to make the case on political uh, grounds. And I'll take those in, in reverse order. I think it's really vital that we understand the key thing Elizabeth did was to put the monarchy above politics. For many people, politics is dirty. It's a nasty place where people disagree with you, people argue, people fight, and it gets unpleasant. Instead of the mystique of monarchy, politics consists of people who disappoint you, who make promises that they then break, people like me, politicians. I sometimes wonder if the point of the Conservative Party in many ways is to make politics unattractive make people think we want nothing to do with it. And as Rosa Luxemburg taught us, the working class needs politics and democracy to secure that their position. So one challenge, I think, to the need for a republic is that people assume we would have to end up with Boris Johnson as president. The Americans voting for Trump or the French voting for Macron are obvious examples of racists getting elected to presidential positions. But there are counterexamples. Ireland has never had a good tea shop, or as Liz Truss would say, tea shop. In a hundred years of the Republic, I don't think there's been, been a good prime minister. Other people might disagree, and that's okay. But at least two, possibly more, of their last three presidents, Michael D. Higgins and Mary Robinson, have been absolutely superb. Yeah. Electing the head of state works. We, we, we see that there. And the danger of an unelected monarch is much greater. Where Elizabeth's opinions were on insignificant matters, corgis, horses, and and sherry, we know Charles has opinions. Charles has opinions coming out of his ears and all too often out of his mouth too. I think this creates an opportunity to bring the monarchy into a crisis. These opinions are often distasteful to natural monarchists on things like the Rwanda refugee and asylum scheme to climate breakdown. Charles is actually right on these things, but that he has these opinions is a challenge to to monarchists. Very many monarchists think that he's wrong on them. And worse than that, they think it's inappropriate he has these opinions at all. Far from the mystery of the monarchy, I think it's likely to become embattled, or it could become embattled if, if he doesn't change. And we don't really know how that's going to go. Of course, there's the practical question of what would replace a monarchy. Um, And this feeds some of a set of broader questions, I think. Do we want a written constitution? The extraordinary wrangling over whether or not Scotland is allowed to have an independence referendum points to the need to 
partly agree what we think is important about how we relate to one another as a state, whether that state is the UK or, or, or Scotland. Would we have a presidential system? If so, would it be executive or honorary? Do we want a president like France or the US or one like Ireland? In some ways, I think I prefer the Irish model. It allows for somebody who understands politics but isn't involved in the everyday machinations of decision-making to be in place to make critical decisions, like whether to remove a prime minister who's just lost the support of his government, for instance. The gross indignity of the way Johnson was toppled would not have been necessary if there had been somebody there able and willing to act. But we need to leave the space open for debate. I think it shouldn't be up to any one party, any one current government to decide that. It has to be part of the dem democratic system we create, where there is a participative approach to decision making. So we move to principle. And I think the key argument is that a monarchy creates a society of patronage, where positions are attained, not through the will of citizens, not through any quality of, of skill or experience, but through accident of birth. When I was rector of Aberdeen University, Camilla was chancellor, and you could see the contagion in decision-making where her influence faced privilege, not democracy or good management at the heart of the institution. Deference to someone with no democratic or academic credentials all too often won arguments that it really should, should not have been won. So we need to make this case, I think, with, with some vigour. The moment at which Elizabeth chose to prorogue Parliament was one where the monarchy overreached its powers, quite clearly. But it was difficult to make the case that the elderly Elizabeth should have refused the legal advice of Boris Johnson. But as we move to a new monarch, that excuse fades. The next time a Tory prime minister tries to pull such a stunt, we need to be absolutely clear of how totally inappropriate that is. I think there are also an increasing number of issues where it is clear that the monarch has intervened in public policy. The apolitical veil that Elizabeth drew over the monarchy allowed her to evade scrutiny on the use of royal prerogative, which allowed her and allows her successors to exclude themselves from laws passed by Parliament, to change the laws altogether, to influence the, the very creation of those laws. And that's something we need to highlight and resist. So we have an opportunity. The next six months gives us a very clear opportunity to put the case for a republic in a way that we have not been able to for 70 years. And we've got, I think, in the last five or six years, a whole range of examples of just why that is so important, why we need a very different kind of political institution in, in, in Scotland and in, in the wider UK. So we have to take that opportunity, opportunity I think, to organise and make sure that the case for a republic is better understood. And not, not just on those, those three positions of the, the, the principle, the politics and the practicalities, but on, I think, what is part of why we, we all campaigned for an independent Scotland of creating a different kind of state that has a different kind of understanding of what democracy is, of where power should lie and, and hopefully will lie, and how we as citizens can mobilise around and within that democracy, rather than democracy being something that is done to us. And I think that is largely speaking where, where we've been um, for, for too long. Thank you very much again for the opportunity and really look forward to your questions. Okay, so any anybody who'd like to make an initial contribution? One of the things that people have been saying is, you know, there's a problem. People understand by a republic 
Well, does that not mean Donald Trump? Yes. Does it not mean, does it not mean Putin? Does that not, you know, the head of state, I forget his name, of North Korea? Does it not mean Moni in Italy? All of these are republics. And I think means we have to have a view of republicanism that is different from the absence of a monarchy. The original republicanism was the sovereignty of the people. When you go and examine the United States, you find it is not a democracy in many ways in its revolution. A counter-revolution occurred within it, which of course, first of all, then held the old British idea towards Native Americans as people that could be wiped out, but also encouraged slavery. But more to the point, the crown powers were given to the president. You know, the division between the House of Commons, the House of Lords, and the Supreme Court and ended up the House of Representatives, the, the Senate, and, you know, the, the, the presidency. So the, in many ways, what you had was an imperial republic that has kept the crown powers together. It was interesting in the last campaign to, uh, for, a, uh, to, for a republic in Australia, who led that campaign? A certain Rupert Murdoch. Now, it's not surprising that many people were highly suspicious. What was his view of it was he would inherit all the crown powers as president. So it's not surprising. So we have to have a view of democracy that is not the absence of a monarchy, but is also about opposing, it's about channeling democracy. Just as the second point I would make there, just to open up perhaps an argument is, a lot of people at the moment, you know, on the left and including in the say, can we not keep quiet about the monarchy till we get independence? Then we can do it after that. Now, a key argument the radical independence campaign has made actually one of the things that's going to stop you getting independent are the crown powers. You know, already the Supreme Court is going to rule out. Just a bit. Look at Northern Ireland. Now, in Northern Ireland, the ultra unionists have lost overall control. Last elections in Stormont, so Sinn Fein comes to third point. Now, what you would think would happen is the British government would say, turn to the unions and say, I think you know, we're going to have to rethink them a bit about what you're doing. You might going to have to go for a softer Brexit because that's what I know then people voted against Brexit. You might have to actually start accommodate nationalists, but actually they're getting harder and harder against. How can they do that with less and less support? It's because they are backed by the British state, which will use its current powers to pattern. They don't care that these things aren't majority, just because they don't care in Scotland that there'll be a, you know, there's a majority who actually want a referendum. That's what seems better. They have the powers. There. So part of our argument has to be against the current powers as well as we support Republicans as democratic rights, not just the absence of a monarchy. It is about, it is finally about power, not personality. Now, having said that, I remember, many of us remember Tony Benn always used to say, it's not about personality, it's about politics. But in fact, of course, he was a personality. <laughs> and so you, you can't totally separate the, the things, but it's easy to get caught. I mean, when I said at the beginning, well, not my contribution, that in a sense, one of the PR things they've done is to sort of turn, I mean, I, mean, I think this happened very reluctantly, but sure. to, to acknowledge that, at a certain level, um, the royal family is a kind of soap opera and a psychodrama. And if people can get in, be involved in that, then they don't ask any of the critical questions about power and politics behind it. And, you know, Maggie's point about the Queen very successfully convincing people that she didn't have any opinions, though we know that they did leak out on, say, Scottish independence, for example. 
But so the masking of that, and I don't think you can back that by completely sort of saying, oh, we don't ever talk about the personalities. I mean, you, you know, your point about, you know, Charles's judgment. But I think the way that you can do that is to root it in looking at the system. The system produces, what Kat said, flattery. It produces, you know, obeisance to, to power um, and deference and, and so on. It produces patronage. It produces great wealth. And within those systems, I mean, if you take the example of Charles in relation to climate, I, I agree with Maggie. I think his views on climate change you know, has some good views and they're probably quite sincerely held. But someone in his position is going to end up being a hypocrite. But you don't spend all your time arguing about that. What you, you try and do is to get back to what that represents in terms of powers. You know, your point and the point that, that you made as well, Alan, about the crown powers and how significant that is. So if you can get it away from as Kat said, the hating and towards the people should not be trapped in the system, we shouldn't be trapped in, the, in that system. Then the question, as my last point is, what kind of structure of alternative? I mean, it's good that we're talking about the difficulties in arguing for a Republican people think you're arguing for a Trump instead of a, a Charles, you're not going to win, win that. But it, it is actually therefore rooting it in a much wider democratic argument. But also, in a sense, to ask the question, how do you get rid of them? Well, I mean, of course, if Scotland did become independent, then we would have a straightforward choice about a monarchy or not. But until that happens, the question is, you know, are you calling for straight abolition or are you calling for the withdrawal of powers and the sort of receding and so on? It's worth having a little bit of a think about that procedurally because um, the powers can be used to potentially to block independence. I think there are also ways in which they can't. Um, but, you know, th there are those sorts of sort of practical political questions that, that need to be asked. And the very last comment is living with the people's contradictions. Over this. I had a friend of mine on social media who said, you know, help me out here, friends. I'm cross with myself because I'm actually quite angry that the king who I don't think should exist is not being allowed to go to COP26. <laughs> and kind of, he understood what he was saying, that no, it shouldn't be that you have to have a king to argue the case and so on. But, you know, he was recognising the contradictions. And my own experience of that, going back to that 1981 anecdote, was the other thing that happened during the Charles and Diana thing, was that numbers of us had badges. And I was sitting on the chief opposite this very curly-looking chap, a very elderly chap, and he was kind of tearing up looking at my badge now, from a distance, my badge was a black badge with a royal crest on it. And he turned around and he said, oh, it's so nice to see a young person who's not an antagonist. <laughs> I have to confess to you, friends, I did not have the courage to tell him that the slogan on that badge was 29th of July, general strike against the monarchy. <laughs> but, you know, so living with humanly with people's contradictions, whilst continuing to point both to power and to the alternative that we're trying to build seems to me really important. Thank you, Sam. Now, what I'm going to do just now is go around the platform party in the reverse order. So it'll be Maggie first, then Connor, uh, Tristan, some of us in first. So first of all, Maggie. Thanks, and and th thanks all for your your comments and and contributions. It's been it's been an interesting interesting discussion. I think a, a few things to to try and draw draw together. I think the sort of cult or culture of the royal family and, that, and how that seeps into every element of of our lives, our politics, the sort of myth-making of identity and, and, and all of that kind of thing. I think 
and, and that romanticism that comes with it, I think it's very clear to me that it is deeply rooted in, in the patriarchy. It's deeply rooted in that sort of colonial patriarchal power system that is fundamentally what I want to break, what I want to destroy with independence. And I think the whole little girls want to be princesses and, and all that trap. I, th I think it's really, really important that we, we make those connections for people. Some of the things, what do we actually say? How, how do we talk to people about this? And it is, it's about making, making it, it real to, to their existences, to their lives. And that's hard because little girls want to be princesses because society is telling them that that's what they should want, you know, whether they do actually or not. But for me, the, the, the destruction of the royal family is utterly embedded in my feminist struggle against, against patriarchal power. And I think there's, that opens up space for, for certain types of conversation. It won't be appropriate everywhere and it will turn some people off. But I think it also speaks, Bryce, your first question around access and bringing people in, including people in the conversation. I, th I think they're, they're lessons that we, we can learn from the, the feminist movements over the, over the years. And I think that links into my second point around the protection that wealth provides that that sort of wealth and protection nexus and we see we see that with Andrew we see that with Royals connection generally to nasty pieces of work like Saddle Jimmy Saddle and, and others and I think there's a very a very important parallel to make with wealth more generally we know that wealth provides protection regardless and there's additional layers of protection given to the royal family for, for a whole range of bad behavior because because of who they are and i think make, making making those connections explicit and yeah as you say get up close and personal whenever we've got the chance and, and, and challenge them on, on that I, I think i think that is really really important one of the things we need to do that is and, and this is my third point and i think the independence movement generally knows this because we were, we were up against it in 2014 but we, we need a different kind of media and we need to be building we need to be creating we need to be being that different kind of media because what we've got ain't going to do it for us that's one of the challenges and i think just a couple of small points be, be, before i close the argument and i agree simon i think you said you know the point about don't make the argument about oh the economic value or, or the tourism value. I think you know when when we get rid of the monarchy, because we will, when we get rid of the monarchy, the buildings don't vaporize. Yes. You know, the, the Palace of Versailles is still there in France. It's still a tourist attraction. It's still there. It's it doesn't need the people in, in them to be good for the economy if that's what you want to base your economy on. That that's a whole other uh, other argument. But the idea that you actually need the people with the crowns on their heads is just is just nonsense. Two two last little little snippets. I think there's I found it was interesting. There were, I think there were only two MSPs who did not turn up, not engage with any of the death drama. Myself and Mercedes Vialba, a Labour MSP for the Northeast as well, who lives in Dundee. And the, the two of us both got shit for that on social media. We had emails, we had all sorts of stuff coming into us. We also had, you know, thank you, you're the only two with any kind of moral decency or whatever, which, which is also, I think, maybe a little bit too far the other way, um, because th there are reasons for, for why people did what they did. But I think I think there is something that there needs to be the recognition that we need 
Bryce, you mentioned the word solidarity a few times. We need we need to be in this in solidarity with each other because we will get attacked, we will get pelters. And that's fine, you know, because pe people hold these views very, very deeply. The last thing, and, and this is a plea, I want an independent Scotland not to have anything to do with a monarchy, but we have to make sure that we grant uh, residents citizenship before or at the same time as we get rid of the monarchy, because the only reason I'm still here is uh, I'm a Commonwealth citizen. I'm not a British citizen, but I'm a Commonwealth citizen. And I realise the irony and potential hypocrisy in that, because good on the royal family for, for, for creating the Commonwealth, end on that in jest. But I, th I think that there are there are questions around those kinds of those kinds of issues that, that we need we do need answers for. I take what people have said about emotional arguments, but I think we do need a plan. We need yes. that map how this works and you know how we get rid of it. It's ironic, isn't it? It's called a commonwealth when it absolutely isn't, isn't it? Commonwealth <laughs> in it at all. Yeah. But Connor. Um, yeah, really good contributions all around from the panel and from the floor. Uh, so thanks very much for all that, and especially all the kind of points and questions made. Um, I'm sorry to hear, Maggie, of the abuse you've got for being a Republican. It's quite funny because uh, I, I had a little quote in The Guardian right up after the proclamation where I said, you know, I don't believe there should be a king. And some people actually tracked me down on Facebook to send me abusive messages with that. And I'm not even a public figure, so I can only imagine what is scale which you and Mercedes got it. We're very well represented in the Northeast. Um, I want to just go take some of the points that were made in, in order. Um, and, and Bryce made the point, or I think Bryce and Emily both made the point about um, you know, the dominant culture of the monarchy is great and how that's fed to us through different bits of media. Um, actually, I'm going to take a bit more of an optimistic note in that. There's actually a really good kind of culture of... Uh, Skepticism towards royalty and privilege as well. Yeah, you know, for every like childhood story that's about like a Disney princess or whatever, you do get stories that are about like tyrannical kings who are out of touch, who are overthrown, um, or horrible ice queens or whatever else. And uh, you know, it's really interesting how the concept of common sense has been co-opted so much by the right and the far right in particular over the last few years, where they kind of launder reactionary views through this thing of it's just common sense, it's just common sense. And you think back to how common sense was the basis of Th Thomas Paine's argument against the monarchy in the American Revolution. Um, and maybe actually we should be reclaiming a little bit of that. But actually, it, it does make such clear sense to people that, you know, as humans, as citizens, we should be equal and there shouldn't be this kind of unelected thing. And it's actually, I think, easier than we might think to, to make that point across people, especially when you remove, you know, the experience of growing up knowing Lizzie, you know, having a fondness for her. People don't know about the powers that the, the monarchy has, that the monarchy exercises, you know, on behalf of the Prime Minister. Um, and I think we can make a pretty rational argument around that. Just we have to get our foot in the door and have the space to make that. Emily made the point about, you know, like orangeism or loyalism. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of different, people have different opinions on whether that's a cultural issue, whether it's a religious issue, whether it's a material issue. I actually think it's probably a little bit of all of these things. We talked about the, the royalty and this kind of thing of patronage and privilege and how it kind of infects all of society, you know, from the top down. Um, I mean, the, the whole concept of Protestant privilege, which, you know, we've seen Charles has already sworn to protect as part of his kind of uh, proclamation. Um, it's sold to working class people on the basis that uh, you will be rewarded for being loyal. You know, um, if you are a working class person and you defend 
you know, the Protestant faith, etc. You know, you'll you'll be better off than the Catholics, for example, or any other kind of religious groups. And I think we we do have to engage with people like that, not in a way that compromises our principles, but like it, it, we we do need to make to, to address that as a social issue, something to incorporate. And that's actually something that Republicans in the North of Ireland have been grappling with mm-hmm. for a very long time. Mm-hmm. Um, more and more seriously, I think, and we've seen some of the cultural engagement that's happened. So that you know, you've got unionists in East Belfast who learn and teach the Irish language, for example, and you've got Republicans learning Ulster Scots, which is something that they used to have a, a lot of Republicans used to have a very dim view of. Um, I actually think there's a great opportunity there with the Scots language renaissance that's happening in Scotland to do a bit of outreach there as well. Um, I had a, a man who's now a councillor in Derry came over to Dundee a few years ago for a book launch that we did. And we went to the pub afterwards and somehow the Scots language came up and he thought we would all agree that it's not a language. And he was quite surprised uh, when we all argued with him, no, it is a language. And he left that conversation having said to me, you know, I think that's changed the way I think about this. And so that cultural engagement, there's a a scope there. So I think very much we can probably learn from Republicans in Ireland about dealing with loyalists. Um, And they can, Republicans there can even learn from us about cultural engagement with uh, people who see a cultural affinity with Scotland, for example. So again, exchange is really important, I think. Point about hatred to the royal family. I can kind of live with hatred to the royal family. I mean, I could certainly understand it. I actually think all things considered, there's probably not as much hatred to the royal family as there, there well could be. You know, we came through like the Black Lives Matter movement, but there was a lot of appeals for institutions to make good on the, how they benefited from slavery and colonialism. And somehow the royal family has actually escaped much of the brunt of that. You know, you've got more accountability from like Glasgow University than you do from an institution that was at the helm of the state that went and uh, extracted wealth from all around the world. You know, Prince Andrew is, uh, you know, a sex criminal who's effectively been rehabilitated through his mother's death. And that is, again, something where there seems like this glaring absence. And I can totally understand people hating them. But at the same time, I understand that the language of hatred doesn't appeal to everyone. And this point we're making about accessibility or about learning from the feminist movement, there's, I, th- I think that's right to say that we need to have a discussion that doesn't rely on hatred and abuse that invites more people in. And I just wanted to close in saying, actually, I think we can learn a lot about political processes, processes of discourse that are less binary, less polarizing. I think there's a tendency because we're fighting for an independence referendum, a lot of people just want to say we should have a referendum and this as well and this as well and this as well. But actually, I think we'd benefit from alternatives to just a a yes or no vote. Uh, In Ireland, for example, the citizens' assemblies did a great deal to build consensus around things like abortion, things that were very contentious um, from the outset ended up having, you know, a large, like, you know, there was politicians who were changing their mind, which is a very rare thing sometimes so publicly and so um, obviously. And I think we could benefit from a process like that after independence. People have talked about models of constituent assemblies and so on. Um, I think the more participatory that is, um, the more successful it will be. And I think that's also really important in terms of actually bringing unionists, people who are going to vote no to independence, into the process of building an independent Scotland. We can't have it so that they feel excluded from everything that happens after a yes vote. It should be, we're voting yes. Everyone is now going to have a part to play in deciding what the constitution is going to be, where the political powers lie. And I think actually getting into a discourse like that will strip a lot of the um, prejudices, hatred, feelings, emotions out of it and manage to make it a more rational discussion about um, political structures. So in my opening, I spoke a lot about how our public are and what Kind of situation we've been left in now and i kind of want to refocus to what we're looking at going forwards 
And I think it's important um, to note in that respect, and especially looking at the proclamation, um, that the real powers the monarchy have are obviously incredibly important. So the kind of things that they are able to do in law actually speak to people, because people do respond poorly to finding out the extent of those powers. But I'm actually personally of the opinion they could never actually use those powers. So if they attempted to, they'd probably be stripped of them by Parliament, um, especially if they ran, ac ran across whatever the Parliament um, government wanted at that given time. I don't think a king could remove a Conservative Prime Minister, for example. Um, but what I think is the... But he, a king probably could remove a Labour Prime Minister. I, I disagree. Okay. But, I, but the fact that that's making even happen, I think, is yeah. important. Yeah. Um, but I, I actually think you brought up a great example earlier of where, that, um, where their influence is actually more dangerous and toxic. And it's things like having a vice principal of a university who comes from an entirely right-by-birthright background, where their power is entirely given to them by their family, not by any qualification they may have, and how that trickles down through society, how we end up with a prime minister who's able to prorogate parliament just by calling on the monarch to do, the, do it for them, because they feel they have the right to. He, the prime minister went to Eton, he comes from money, he has broke, he's broken laws and lies all over the place throughout his career, and he feels like he can, because that's how our, our country runs. We have a situation where a member of the royal family allegedly probably commit crimes abroad and just come back home and immediately be rehabilitated by royal patronage. Um, and I think that toxicity, when it feeds into an influence on the public, becomes something that people that people rally around. And we saw that with the proclamation when our protesters ended up getting kettled by police, all 12 of them. <laughs> And in the days following that, the membership of our republic doubled instantly in a membership surge we hadn't managed to pull off in two years um, because people really closely associated with, you're just not allowed to do that. That's not fair. That's not right. They were just being there and um, Connor, bless his enormous lungs, <laughs> booed loudly enough for the TV cameras to pick it up. And the police <laughs> responded, basically, I think their argument will end up being that they thought our protesters were going to end up being violently assaulted. And that's why they swept in. I think that's the argument they, they will give. But I think that's where the importance of, importance of numbers comes from. Um, the fact that they thought that such a large um, monarchist crowd could end up going to blows with a small number of Republican protesters, and the fact that a couple of them actually did mm -hmm. down the Royal Mile when someone shouted at Prince Andrew, thankfully they've finally now been charged, mm -hmm. yeah. but they were charged two weeks later. Our pro one of the protesters who was kettled was charged that night for holding a placard, mm -hmm. Um, and I think that's the toxicity of the um, the fact that they felt that was the right thing to do, that silencing members of the public was the correct course of action yeah. to make sure that no one rocked the boat too much. Just quick, a quick interjection on that. Uh, in Oxford, of course, Simon Hill, who's a good friend of mine, um, got uh, arrested initially for, you know, shouting who elected you when, uh, when mm -hmm. the proclamation was made. 
because it got in the way of his coming out of church. But actually, some of the royalists around him were arguing with the police and saying, we disagree with him, but, you know, he was perfectly polite. He's not being threatened. Why are you doing this? And just to put that in, not because we should rely on royalists, but, but because actually when people do see that injustice, they, they actually, some people do respond mm -hmm. to it. And I, th I think that becomes a really um, important rallying cry, but I think it's also important to recognise that each of the Republican groups here tonight, and also wider across Scotland, have different roots and have different connections with wider society. The Republican Socialist platform has pretty deep roots with the radical left. Um, the, Sc the Scottish Greens um, have a fairly different voter base to that that they can speak to. Our Republic has basically set out on a mission to have a general catch-all, which isn't spoken to already. You kind of bring across people who might be already on the borderlines of swinging in our direction. I think that each group can speak differently and draw support from different groups is important, but also makes it especially important that we work together and don't end up at cross-purposes, that we have a somewhat similar view of why it is the monarchy needs to go. And I think class is an important part of but how those different roots um, manifest and, and patriarchy, because um, as Maggie mentioned, herself and Mercedes ended up getting a lot of abuse for withdrawing from the, from the parliamentary occasions. I don't think someone of my demographic necessarily would have had as much abuse if, for example, so picking someone with a similar demographic for me, Alex Cole Hamilton had done the same thing, I don't think he would have been facing the same response. And I think that's important to recognise, and I think it doubles down why numbers are so important. Because I think when people see a few people drop out and move against the grain, they feel more enabled to turn to abuse. When they see it as a group that has support behind them, they feel less enabled to do that. And having have those different routes matters, but also I think that when we got our surge of support, it did matter the kind of people who were being kettled by police. You have a bit of a story behind the proclamation. The queen died whilst I was on my honeymoon, which was a little bit rude. And I had to apologize profusely to my wife for spending a lot of time on the phone following that. <laughs> But it meant that I had to get one of my friends to run around my house and collect the Our Republic stuff to run up the Royal Mile. But who else turned up because she'd actually heard about it by us? But my mother-in-law. <laughs> and my mother-in-law, who, bless her, is a very middle-class lady who likes to um, be on the right side of the law, was somewhat shocked to be kettled by police. <laughs> um, and... That shock is something she immediately communicates to all of her friends who are very sympathetic and they weren't necessarily people who would be sympathetic with a Republican group. And I think that is similar to the trajectory independence has followed, the fact that it used to be quite a radical idea. And as it grew arms and legs and as it spread across different elements of society and different groups started campaigning for it, each of which had different ideological roots, that mass built momentum on its own. And I think that is what republicanism is capable of. In terms of messaging, and to mention, just to mention the things that people have been mentioning so far, 
I think it is a strategic decision whether or not to go nasty in personality politics. And so far, the public has decided not to, because we don't think it's a very useful way of going about it. We don't think that the hatred approach to the monarchy wins hearts and minds. Um, however, we're more than happy to leave the tabloids to break down the illusion themselves, because <laughs> they love nasty gossip. And that nasty gossip does undermine the image of the monarchy as being this monolith that is apolitical and somewhat above the human nature of everyone else. We think that it's important to stick to the principles because monarchs change. And because we might end up in a situation where William, who looks somewhat less political so far than Charles, might end up imminently taking the throne. We don't know. So we can't rely on personality politics to make the point, even if we enjoy the results of the, that personality uh, undermining their edifice. I am personally quite sympathetic to the idea of a, Republic, of a Republican society that moves in the direction of having basically a head of protocol as its end result, uh, where they basically just welcome foreign dignitaries and look Scottish. I think that's a nice way to, I think that's functionally, I think that's a way that the Irish presidency has somewhat moved, though occasionally he gets pulled in to um, make some big decisions. But I think that's a debate that needs to be had mm. by our society democratically. Yeah. Um, and I think that focus on it being by society democratically, getting everyone involved is why our republic's next moves, what we're looking to do next is both set up some more events, making sure we get more people involved, why we set up the event for the 6th of May immediately to try and make sure that it was being kept in people's minds. And we look forward to working with as many Republican groups as possible to make that uh, event that crosses all political um, lines. But also, I think one of our next moves is going to be bringing this issue to Parliament, because we think that we can win a kind of double whammy here on both, on both the things I've been talking about, in that we can make people more aware of the powers that people, the monarchy has. We can bring more soft Republicans in the parliamentary groups out of the closet, so to speak, to speak about things that aren't tearing down the monarchy, but do speak to transparency and people having the right to know what's going on. And we can start rolling the ball on parliament actually having a say on these things so what what we're looking to do in our next steps is to bring the concept of parliament that all the discussions about laws that have been had with the monarchy should be made public all the laws that have been modified for that purpose should be made public and that all further discussions on that on those processes should be made public we can cannot in scotland at the moment bar the monarch from having those powers. We don't have those powers yet, but we can educate the public by putting parliament in the position that all of these discussions happen out in the open. And that I think speaks to making people aware of just how extensive the monarch's powers are, whilst also making this debate one that the public is having. So I just would like to thank you particularly all the speakers tonight for coming, coming along. And uh, we'll meet again soon. Thanks for listening to Scottish Independence Podcasts. 
We have a new episode out every Friday and if you've missed any, catch up on our website podcasts.independencelive.net. You can also follow us on YouTube, Twitter and TikTok.